0: Rosewood, Rosewood, buried in the ashes of history, Rosewood, Rosewood, where my family home used to be.
1: Clark and this is Dreams of Black Wall Street. Emerged as an African-American musical form related to both spirituals and work songs at the end of the 19th century and rapidly became popular across the cultures of the United States as blues sheet music began to appear in the early 20th century. End quote. This excerpt is from an article by the Library of Congress titled Blues as Protest. It goes on to say, quote, Blues became so popular in 19-teens and 20s that many published songs that had none of the sound we think of as blues had, quote, blues, end quote, in their titles. Though blues songs commonly expressed personal emotions and problems such as lost love or longing for another place or time, they were also used to express despair at social injustice. Abel Mirapol, a Jewish poet who wrote under the pseudonym Lewis Allen, wrote one of the most famous blues protest songs, Strange Fruit, popularized by singer Billie Holiday. Mirapol first wrote it as a poem in reaction to the lynching of Thomas Shipp and Abram Smith in Indiana in 1930. Later, he set his poem to music. Billie Holiday famously sang the song to close her performances, but a record company, Columbia, refused to record it for fear of retaliation. Commodore Records agreed to produce it, and it first appeared as a single in 1939. Prison laborers in the southern states, the majority of whom were African American and replaced slave labor after the Civil War, sang songs that complained about their plight. Work songs protesting prison conditions demonstrate the emergence of blues, such as We Don't Have No Payday Here, sung by a group of convicts at Rayford Penitentiary in Florida. In another recording of a work song sung by prisoners at Rayford Penitentiary, Take This Hammer, the first-person character of the song not only complains about the work, but boldly says that he will flee. The blues quality is especially strong in this song, though it retains the qualities of a work song. Huddy, Lead Ledbetter Leadbetter, later made a hit recording of a version of this song, which he'd learned in prison, end quote. Speaking of prison, as it turns out, one of the central figures in the story of Rosewood had his own experience as a prison laborer in the Deep South. We'll explore this a bit later. But first, the purpose of that explanation of blues as a form of protest. During a June 2015 interview with Blues International Radio, singer and songwriter Eric Bibb was being interviewed about his music, including his then-newly-released album, Blues People which he calls a, quote, tribute to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech and a homage to the original blues people, the Afro-American creators of a style celebrated today as part of the common heritage of mankind, end quote. One of the songs on that album is Rosewood, which you heard a bit of in the beginning of this episode. Now, after doing some research about Rosewood online, Bibb found an account of the Rosewood massacre from one of the survivors who escaped through the swamps. After he wrote the song, he realized that there's a lot of work left to be done when it comes to building a more peaceful, nonviolent, tolerant society. He said, quote, 1923 didn't really feel that far away in lieu of these recent events. So I sang this song as a reminder, really, just to myself and anybody who's listening, that, as I said, we still have a lot of work to do. End quote.
0: They say the whole thing started With Fanny Taylor's lie That spark lit the flame Fear and hatred fed the fire Truly It started centuries ago Ships with human cargo Chained down below I was in the third grade, I could read and write, I remembered everything, the moon was full and bright, so bright, you could see shadows at midnight, the night it burned rose to the ground. Rosewood, buried in the ashes of history. Rosewood, Rosewood, where my family home used to be. put on heavy clothes Fast as we could There was shooting everywhere Had to get out in the woods First person killed was my uncle Sam Carter was his name What happened in Rosewood that night Nothing but a crime and a shame papers told how many Whites and blacks were counted dead But the tears had no color The tears their families shed Anyway The numbers in the papers Were nowhere near the truth Could have been ten Could have been a hundred We had no proof Rosewood, Rosewood, buried in the ashes of history, Rosewood, Rosewood, where my family home used to be. And yeah. we'd get away Never talked about mm-hmm. Till today Rosewood Rosewood Bird in the ashes of History Where my family home used to be, burned like a brand on a child's memory, where my family home used to be.
2: You know, wading deep into the, in the places, handwritten prison records, there's a little bit of detective work there. I was able to find the uh, the actual uh, entry for Sylvester Carrier and his father, Hayward, when they were arrested for cattle wrestling. At a time, as many family members told me and some historians, uh, the uh, brutal convict lease program in the Deep South, where basically uh, convicts were sold as cheap labor to private individuals who worked them just basically like mules until they died. Uh, most black convicts did not leave prison, or did not leave very, very soon after they went in. And I found these records to back that up. Almost every entry I saw, handwritten, there would be escaped so and so date, caught, returned to prison so and so date, escaped so and so date. And the final entry for almost every one of them would be uh, either died in prison or was killed uh, during or after after an escape attempt. Sylvester and Hayward Carrier were released after only a matter of, uh, well, less than a year in prison, which indicates and which backs up a lot of the families, um, their position that that they had been framed for this cattle wrestling charge by some of their neighbors. And and, uh, so this was basically kind of a message that was sent to them.
1: from author and journalist Michael Dorso. Mr. Jorso is the author of Like Judgment Day, an incredibly detailed account of the community Rosewood, the Rosewood Massacre, as well as the lives of the survivors in the decades that followed and their years-long fight for justice and compensation. We'll explore more of that later in this season of the podcast. This interview with Mr. Dorso was conducted in the spring of 1996 for the recording of the audiobook version of his book, Mr. Dorso was describing some convict leasing prison records he discovered involving Sylvester Carrier and his father while conducting research for this book. You'll recall Sylvester Carrier was the son of Sarah Carrier and skilled in various traits. He was also an excellent marksman. For context, here's a brief explanation of convict leasing. For African Americans, convict leasing in Southern states was really just another form of slavery. Southern states and counties would lease convicts to commercial enterprises. It became even more popular when states realized they could lease out their convicts to local planters or industrialists who would pay small rates for the workers while taking on the care of their food and shelter, effectively eliminating costs and increasing revenue. Eventually, markets for convict laborers sprung up. Entrepreneurs bought and sold convict labor leases. Men were leased from county courthouses and jails to local plantations, lumber camps, factories and railroads. Convict leasing became highly profitable for the states. The prisoners were cheap, disposable labor. Conditions were wretched. Unlike in slavery, there was really no incentive to treat a laborer well because slaves were an investment and they could help create a profit. Far less money had to be invested in men for convict leasing prison camps. Additionally, paperwork and debt records were often lost and men often unable to prove they had paid their debts. Additionally, Paperwork and debt records were often, quote, lost, end quote, and men were often unable to prove they had paid their debts. If it's true that Sylvester Carrier and his father could have possibly been set up to be arrested for a crime they did not commit and subsequently sent to a convict leasing prison camp, well, that would be a frightening example of just how vulnerable African Americans were in the 1920s and how they certainly did not have equal protection under the law. With this in mind, it becomes easier to understand the racial tensions that were simmering in Rosewood and how such a tragedy such as the Rosewood Massacre could occur in plain sight of law enforcement officials and right under the noses of a state government that all but turned a blind eye to it. Next, you'll hear Michael D'Orso describe what it was like hearing first-hand accounts about the massacre and their escape from survivors.
2: There is the process for any story like this of waiting out and encountering, you know, your subjects and your places. You know, going out and and uh, interviewing and uh, soaking up a story and doing the footwork. Um, and in this case, uh, you know, I, I knew it was crucial to get to the survivors first um, and as soon as possible because the fact was uh, these were elderly people. They were scattered all over the state and they were in the twilight of their lives. Um, Eleven years before I began this. The story, 60 Minutes, had done their report in 1983, and at that time there were about 80 survivors of Rosewood living. By the time I went out to do this, 10 years later, 11 years later, there were 12. It was just that window of of, of life when these these folks were passing away, and uh, and they were the they were the essential foundation, the people who had who had actually been there. They're they're, they're the hooks on which the story hangs emotionally, in so many other ways. They were the hooks on which the claims bill uh, hung without the testimony of these living witnesses, these people who had been there as children, uh, I doubt the legislature, there's no question, the legislature never would have uh, never would have passed this bill. That's what filled in the gap for the following uh, 10 years between 83 and 93 when this story became, uh, when it got stirred up and the, and the, uh, these scattered survivors found out that one another existed. And the, then the family had to deal with that, that process of pulling back on on pain and fear and shame and all kinds of layers of emotion that, we can only imagine at best and had to decide whether that, whether they wanted to do that. It was a difficult process to just bring this thing up again. They'd been, they'd put it to rest in their own particular ways, every individual. And, uh, um, we, without a doubt, the pain that I encountered with every one of, of the folks I spent time with, and I spent time with every one of the survivors in their homes and, uh, everywhere from, you know, some, some lived in inner city urban areas, some lived, uh, in shacks out in the woods. And, uh, you know, I faced a lot of tears, you know, uh, a lot of silence. Um, it was very vivid, you know, like it happened yesterday for every one of every one of the people who went through this. And uh, another difficult part, just as a reporter, were the, were the, again, this, the wildly varying accounts of family members, you know, survivors and descendants alike. Um, you know, the passion with which these accounts were embraced. You I know, mean, a lot of finger-pointing and name-calling, you know, uh, one, one theme that emerges in this story is that everyone has their own truth, you know, and they guard it jealously. You see it in any family. Families sit around a table and start to talk about old family stories or old incidents. And pretty soon one's saying, oh, so-and-so doesn't know what he's talking about. you know. Now I'll tell you what really happened. This is the way it was. And you take two dozen families and uh, stretch it out over three generations and have the stories stem from a horrifically uh, traumatic experience like this one. And, and the, uh, the head, head-butting can get, can get pretty nuclear uh from From the blacks, naturally, there was an you know initial wariness and a mistrust, and it didn 't even really have to do with the fact that I was white. It had to do with the fact that I was an outsider i 'm not a member of the family and i 'm 'm a reporter i 'm a journalist you know coming in to sort of start probing and this is a process every journalist faces um, you know there's, there's you have to <clears throat> in whatever way you connect with human beings spend time with time and patience uh you know that uh, that distance melts away, and finally, uh, people are able to open themselves up to you. But to me, the uh, the human side of this of this story, uh, there were just huge gaps in everything that I'd seen and read, and everything that was known at the even at the time, all the way up to the all the way up, up to April of 1994. Um, you know, 60 years of silence between 1923 and the early 1980s uh, when the story began stirring again. And then uh, 10 more years of silence after uh, there was a 60 Minutes broadcast about this in 1983. And it's not until 1993 the bills filed. And to me, I was I was just intrigued. I really wanted to find out what was going on in all these lives during all this time, black and white alike over generations and all the way up to now. And that's where the heart and the guts of this of this story um i suspected would be and that's where it turned out to be
1: Talking about his process for researching the history of Rosewood, Michael D'Orso said he initially suspected that the, quote, heart and guts, end quote, of this story would be in the lives of those involved in or somehow connected to Rosewood in the decades following the tragedy, both black and white. For the purposes of his book, his suspicion turned out to be correct. That story begins with the escape of the survivors of the Rosewood Massacre. In order to begin to understand what the victims and survivors endured in their fight for survival, I've turned to Rosewood descendant, Dr. Benet Denson. Dr. Denson is a descendant of the Evans family, one of the original families to settle in Rosewood. Her great-grandmother was Josephine Evans Lewis. Josephine Evans Lewis's daughter is Dr. Denson's grandmother, Altamese Lewis Rispus, who is still alive at the age of 92. Dr. Denson played a part in a film about Rosewood, appropriately named Rosewood, which was directed by the late producer, screenwriter, and director John Singleton, and released in 1997. At one point, you'll hear Dr. Denson compare the Rosewood massacre to an attack at a Capitol. She's referring to the attack at our nation's Capitol in Washington, D.C. in early January of 2021, the year this episode is recorded, ahead of the inauguration of President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris. Doctor Bene Debkin, what is your title with the Rosewood family? Reunion Incorporated.
3: I have a title of administrative overseer. What is your degree in? A doctor of Pharmacy. Great. I know you are
1: a descendant of one of the Rosewood families. Why don't you briefly explain what your family's
3: connection to Rosewood is? Okay. So I'm a member of the Evans family. There were, leave believe, eight main families That lived in Rosewood at the time of the massacre. And I am a member of one of those branches, the Evans family, my great grandmother, maternal great grandmother. She lived in Rosewood. She was born in and lived in Rosewood and with her siblings and her family. So tell me what you do
1: know about their existence in Rosewood, how they perhaps made their money,
3: what skills they had, did they belong to any churches, organizations? From what I know of my great-grandmother, she was a housekeeper when she became of age to start working. So she did housekeeping. And did she have any children? Yes. My great-grandmother had two children, two daughters which was my grandmother, her name is Altamese Rispis, and then my aunt, my grandmother's sister, Annabelle Lee. My grandmother was born in 1928. My aunt was born in 1925. Rosewood, the massacre happened in 1923. So they weren't born yet. Gotcha. All right. Before the
1: history of Rosewood became widely known, do you know how your relatives handled the knowledge about their family history in connection with the massacre? For example, did they discuss it among one another or each other? Or did they just kind of not discuss it at all?
3: Okay. Well, it was discussed amongst family members. However, the family was kind of discouraged against talking about it outside of family. So the story was shared amongst family, but you couldn't talk to anyone else outside of the family about it. It was kind of that forbidden thing that you didn't talk about.
1: How did you first come to learn about your family's connection to Rosewood and
3: the massacre itself? Well, I've known about Rosewood my entire life because I've attended the family reunions my entire life. The family reunion started in 1985. I was born in 1984, so I was a year old, the first reunion. So I've been to every reunion since the inception. So at the reunions every year, the story was talked about. It was passed down. So it's something I've known since childhood, birth, almost.
1: That's really interesting. So you've this perspective your entire life. When
3: did you get to the age where you understood the magnitude of what had happened? Maybe when the movie came out. And what was your impression then? I was still young. I was 11 at the time the movie was being filmed. And I participated in the filming because I played a character in the movie. So I understood the story. The story wasn't really you know, something that was special to me as a child. It was like, okay, this happened to our family. I've always known that this happened to our family. When the movie came about, that's when I started to feel that, okay, this may be a little bigger deal than what I know it to be. What was your role in the movie? I played the character Philomena and she is one of the characters who was the grandchildren of Aunt Sarah in the movie. So Aunt Sarah is the character who worked for Fanny Taylor. She is the white woman who did the accusing. Philomena was the little girl who worked with her grandma for Fanny Taylor.
1: And what became of Philomena?
3: Well, I knew her growing up. She escaped Rosewood like all of the other survivors. Philomena was one of the very strong representations in our family who passed down the story, but also kind of forbid everyone from talking about it outside of the family because it was so traumatic for her. So you didn't want to become an actress after that? (laughs) When I was in elementary school, I did a little acting here and there. It was something that could have been a career, but my mother wanted me to focus more on academics versus acting, so that's what I did. Is there anything
1: maybe once you got older and you learned more, perhaps started asking more questions about Rosewood and about your family that sort of surprised you when
3: you could fully understand how serious it was? Being that it's kind of always been ingrained into me, the story, I don't think anything really surprised me. Now, I know there are a lot of Members of our family, they were separated after fleeing from Rosewood. That would be the only thing that kind of surprised me, knowing that we have so many family members out there that we may and may not know about. We don't know where everyone went. All of the families split up. Some of them relocated to areas together, but then there were some people who were never spoke of again. So we don't know if they made it out or not. My great-grandmother, she actually had, let's see, four other siblings. She had four other siblings, but growing up, we only knew of two siblings. There were two younger brothers that we don't know what happened to after Rosewood. We don't know if they escaped. We don't know if, you know, they died in Rosewood. And it was kind of just something that nobody talked about. They had two younger brothers that they never talked about because we don't know what happened to them.
1: What I found interesting was what you just mentioned was that there were family members who met decades after and some family members who had no idea where, you know, other family members might have been. And it was really hard for me to wrap my head around that perhaps because of my naivete, I'm a millennial, I've always had access to fast, you know, methods of communication, Mm -hmm. and my family knows where each other, you know, are or where our relatives might be. And, you know, if something were to happen, we know where we might go, right? So goodness gracious, how, how, in your opinion, or based on your perspective, is it possible that folks didn't
3: know where their relatives were? Well, it's just because of the the day and time. Once people escaped from Rosewood, because of what happened, a lot of people changed their names. A lot of people escaped to different areas of Florida. And then some people escaped from Florida because they were so afraid of the KKK and didn't want anyone following them. Some people changed their names. So. It's very easy to lose communication with someone when you don't have email and cell phone and Facebook and social media to connect you to people. Once they got on that train, once they left, once they went to different cities, it wasn't easy for them to follow where all of the family members went. And that's one of the reasons why my great aunt decided it would be a good idea to do the family reunions every year and bring everybody back together. Our family reunion. Brings all seven families, all eight families back together every year. And we find more and more family members every year. That's pretty amazing. Can you please explain
1: what you know of your great grandmother's escape from Rosewood during the
3: massacre? Most of the women and children escaped via train. So it was seven days of massacre, of burning the town. And the National Guard was sent in and a train was sent in for the women and children. So most of the women and children got onto the train and they left Rosewood. They were allowed to leave Rosewood. Some people got off in Gainesville. Some people got off in, you know, other cities along the train line.
1: Now, I also read that there were people who had to stay in the swamp, sort of around Rosewood for. Right.
3: Days. So, initially, when everyone left their houses, when they were running away from the mobs, they ran into the woods because it's a wooded area. And that's where they kind of had to hide out until help came. And that's when the National Guard was sent in and the train was sent in to gather the women and children.
1: Did your great grandmother talk about what it was like being in the swamp for those days until the train arrived?
3: My great grandmother died right before I was born. So she died end of 83. I was born beginning of 84. So I didn't have any personal conversations with her. And I am not 100 percent positive that my great grandmother was actually in the swamps because she was a housekeeper and she worked. For a white family in Sumner, there's a possibility she could have been there and then left. And then, you know, I'm not really sure only because that story was never provided to me.
1: Really interesting. I'm glad you mentioned Sumner because I was watching Ed Bradley's 1983 TV report for 60 Minutes on Rosewood (laughs) when he interviewed some of the white folks that were in and around Rosewood still or had knowledge of what had happened. Right. I was kind of surprised because it seemed like, at least from the book, that the white people that were still left, they kind of thought the massacre was
3: justified. That's the time they grew up and everything was justified to them. (laughs)
1: But the white people that were in Ed Bradley's TV report, they seemed dismayed. They seemed like, no, that mob was crazy and I don't know why they did that. I have heard or read that the people of Sumner per se were not the majority of participants in the actual massacre. It was
3: a lot of outside folks. Is that the case? Right. So once the KKK got word of what was going on, mobs and KKK members from other counties, other cities, came in to Rosewood to participate. I liken it to what just happened at the Capitol last month. People were coming in from everywhere to participate in this lynching because they just wanted to, they just felt like they could. It was just, that was something that they did. They had no regard for any black lives and when something like that took place, we're all going to jump in. We're all going to party. It's going to be a big party and we're going to kill as many people as we can. So, yes, people came in from other cities, from other counties to participate in burning the city, burning the town. I do remember Ed Bradley asked one of the white people that
1: remain, well, this was back in 1983, but he did ask the man, you know, why do you think they did it? And
3: he said, I reckon for satisfaction.
1: Mm -hmm. Is that
3: kind of what the family believes as well? Well, that's kind of the mindset. That was the mindset of the KKK. They don't really need a reason to just because they want to was good enough. And so that's what happened. They didn't need a reason. They didn't need to find out the truth. None of that mattered. That's heavy.
1: As an African-American woman, a millennial woman, do you think the larger society in America has a healthy idea or healthy understanding of what happened in Rosewood and similar incidents elsewhere
3: throughout our country? Or do
1: you think that is lacking and why?
3: I think we are learning more. Through social media, the story is being able to be shared more and reach the masses. So I think the more um, we talk about it, the more it is shared, the more people are researching and actually looking at history, more people are finding out about it. So I know a lot more people know about Rosewood now than they did in the 90s. In the 90s, when the movie came out and that movie came, the movie came out in 97, that's when the majority of America heard about the story. That story was not widely shared because the family did not want it to be shared. Actually, the character that I played, Philomena, she's one of the people who would not allow the family to talk about the story. It was only until after her death that her son decided to make it known that this is what happened to our family. Now you're talking about Arnett Doctor. That was- Yes. Okay, okay. Gotcha, Arnett Doctor gotcha. is the son of Philomena Goins. Now, Arnett Goins is the brother to Philomena. Those were the two children in Rosewood. And so, Philomena had a son and named her son after her brother. How do
1: you think the Rosewood family reunion sort of honors the legacy of the Rosewood families and all they accomplished
3: in Rosewood? as well as what happened. Well, just by us coming together every year and pulling all the families together, showing love to one another, supporting each other and remembering our past but having faith in our future, that in itself will leave a lasting legacy. But every year we find more family members. We We help them understand where their place was in Rosewood because some people, a lot of people, they are just finding out that they had connections to Rosewood. Some people are doing like ancestry.com and then they'll go and find, oh, my great, great, great grandfather lived in Rosewood, but I know nothing about Rosewood and I don't know anything about him. And we kind of help put the pieces back together for a lot of families and show everybody where we all fit together and supporting each other. We also honor our ancestors every year at the reunion. We have a memorial service. We honor everyone who lived in Rosewood, everyone who survived, everyone who has passed. They made sacrifices for us to be where we are today, and we honor them every year. During the memorial service, we may do a candle lighting service or sand pouring service, something like that, but we make sure to keep the story alive, keep our family involved and informed and just let everyone know it's a tragic story, but it has to be told and we have to keep it in our hearts and we have to keep it going.
1: We'll dive into what happened to the survivors of the Rosewood Massacre after their escape. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform. One other thing, for my avid history podcast listeners, might I suggest the French History Podcast, described as, quote, a weekly history podcast that will cover France from 3 million years ago to present. Presented by Gary Girard... With contributions by numerous scholars.
0: To read Rosewood, Rosewood, where my family home.